as we've been looking through the book of Acts over the last few weeks, uh, well, kind of last month because it's been weird, um, we've been starting here in Acts chapter 2. So go ahead and open your Bible in Acts chapter 2. We're going to skip over a big chunk of Acts chapter 2. You remember last week we looked at what happened when the Spirit came on the church and uh, when the believers first received the Holy Spirit and how that led to them sharing the gospel and praising God and and how that changed things. Now we're going to pick up a, a little bit of a different picture. Remember there was a large crowd that gathered after they heard the sound and they heard the disciples speaking the truth of the gospel, actually just praising God in their own language. And then what the part we're skipping over is where Peter got up and he preached and he declared for them everything that had taken place and how God had used Jesus as a fulfillment of the prophecies that he'd made in the Old Testament. And when Peter got done with that, 3,000 people got saved. In fact, that's verse 41, right before what we're looking at today. So that, it says verse 41, So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. In fact, most of the book of Acts is about how God equipped the, the church to be able to focus outward, right? That's what we saw there. As soon as they received the Holy Spirit, they spilled out into the streets and took the gospel there to the, the nations as there were people assembled in Jerusalem for a festival. So we see that happen over and over again in Acts, and the majority of the focus on Acts is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's kind of the subtitle for the series. But every once in a while, Luke kind of pulls back from talking about what's going on outside the church to give us a picture of what's happening inside the church. Now, as we'll see this morning, he can't even look inside the church without talking about what they're doing outside, as we'll get into it. But as we're looking at it this morning, we're going to see this, the best summary probably in the book of Acts of what life looked like in the early church. Now, again, I've told you before, Acts is a transition period kind of between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus has inaugurated the New Covenant, but there are some things that take place in the book of Acts that are not normative. They're, in other words, they're not stuff that we would expect to happen every Sunday. However, as we see a few of those things in this passage, there are some really great pictures we can draw out of this of what a healthy church should look like, okay? So we're going to do that this morning is look through and see what the Bible teaches us about how we should look as a church. In fact, um, we've got, like I said, there's over 3,000 people that got saved now. Some aspects were unique, but it, it's a short summary that's got a lot packed into it. In fact, last time I preached through this passage, it was two different messages. Now, I think the reason that I did it in two messages was because about halfway through, I got flagged down by John Osborne because it had started snowing. Um, so that was several years back, and we had to dismiss a little early. We picked back up the next week. We're going to try to cover it all in one message this morning. So if we get, you know, Ah, oh, yeah, we got time. It's great. Just take your watch off. I've got a clock back there. You don't even have to see it. It's fine, right? Those who've been around our church family have learned long enough not to put a crock pot on or not to put on a roast because it's going to be dry. It's just how it goes. As we're diving in this morning, though, we're going to see this picture of church life. In fact, if you catch nothing else this morning, I'd summarize it up this way. A healthy church is made of people who are devoted to learning God's word and investing in others. And we're going to see what that looks like in the early church. But, but that's kind of the main idea, is that a healthy church is made up of people who are devoted to learning God's word and investing in others. And we're going to see how that fleshed out for the early church. But here's the question that I want you to ask as you're going through this. Here's the thing about it. How many of you guys remember the little thing you did with your fingers when you were kids, right? About the, you know, this is the church, and here is the steeple, right? Open the doors and see all the people. Okay, for those of you who are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's okay. It was a thing that we used to do when we were little kids, and there was this little rhyme that went with it. You know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and see all the people. Well, here's the problem with that. 
this is the church, not this, okay? This is the building we meet in, right? This is the place where we gather to encourage one another, and it's important for us to gather when we can because it's, it, there's, there is something that God does through his people gathered together that doesn't happen when we're individually. Now, we know we're in the middle of a pandemic, and it's a weird season right now. Um, my wife gets so tired of me saying that phrase because our entire 15 years of marriage has been a weird season right now. Um, but it's a weird season right now. We understand, and we're sensitive to those who are being more cautious with the pandemic and things. However, there is something that happens when God's people gather together. Now, if an ice storm had caused some tree to somehow magically fall on this building, which they're far enough away, it wouldn't have been an issue, or if the ice had brought the steeple down, the church would still exist, although the building may get destroyed, right? Because the church is the people. So here's the thing. If a healthy church is people who are devoted, that means you have to be one of those people. Does that make sense? There is a corporate application of what God's doing, but I I want you to notice in that corporate application of, of us seeing that a church is made up of people who are devoted to God's word and who are investing in the lives of others, that means you. It's not for somebody else to be devoted to God's word or for somebody else to be involved in, God's, in the lives of other people. It's, it's your responsibility. So my question for you is to think about it this way. As we go through the, the attitudes, the actions, the outcomes of the early church that we see here in Acts chapter 2, here's what I want you to ask yourself between you and God. If everyone that's a part of Christiansburg Baptist Church were to act the way I do, in this area, would we be a healthy church? Okay? If everybody in in Christiansburg Baptist was like me where I am in this one, would we be a healthy church? And if not, what do I need to change to make sure that I'm a part of that? Make sense? So here's how we're going to break it out. There's a bunch of different ways you could divide what's in here. What we're going to do to break it out this morning is divide it into kind of three different sections and there's subpoints and things. I don't usually like getting that detailed of an outline, but there's so much going on uh, that I really want us to be able to focus on it. We're going to look at it from the perspective of the attitude that they had, then the actions that they did, and then the outcomes of how that played out. For those of you who are following along, that's an A word, an A word, and an O word. I could not come up with an A word that said outcomes. I tried, all right? Um, the thesaurus failed me on this one. So feel free to, you know, to uh, text me and let me know what I missed. But I couldn't come up with a good word for it, all right? Now, as we go through this, let's go ahead and read the text, and then we'll come back and we'll break it apart so you can see a little bit more clearly what's going on, okay? Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves, key word there we'll talk about, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Boy, don't those last verses sound good? That that they had joyful, sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Man, doesn't that sound like a great church to be a part of? 
Well, before we look at those outcomes, let's back up and see the actions and attitudes that got them to that point. The first thing I want you to notice as we get into this is that they had an attitude of devotion. If we are going to be a healthy church, we have to have that same attitude of devotion. Go back there to verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves. Now, we'll talk in a minute about exactly what they were devoting themselves to. But, but first off, let's just kind of think about that idea. He uses that again down in verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves. Again, we'll talk about what that actually meant, but what does it mean to be devoted to something? All right, think about it. We just came through the Super Bowl, right? Um, I didn't have a dog in the fight. Apparently, the referees, though, were devoted to Tom Brady. Uh, that just seems to be how the entire NFL is at this point. Uh, sorry for those of you former Patriots, now Buccaneers fans. But some of you guys, I mean, if you've ever been around, I- I've had some friends who are so devoted to their team that how dare you speak anything negative about them in their presence, right? Like, these are the guys that you don't want to watch the game with, because they're just such rabid fans that it, it, you, just, you can't talk to them. Um, you know, you've, seen, you've probably seen the viral videos going around Facebook of the guy that gets mad and throws his remote through the TV, you know, and all that kind of stuff. There's that kind of devotion, that rabid devotion. We, we'll see it again here in a few weeks when March Madness comes up, and some of you are Duke fans, and some of you are UNC fans, and some of you are NC State fans, and some of you, I don't even know who else is out there, because I mean, that's, North Carolina basketball is really all there is. Uh, Although, y'all know me, I don't care about sports. I mean, I really don't. You know, one team's going to outsports the other. Um, yeah, that's just how it goes. But some of you, that's, that's your thing. Man, you are devoted to your team. You can give me every statistic of every player. You can tell me their shoe size. You can tell me their jersey size. You can tell me how many minutes they played last game. You, you know, you're devoted to that team. Others of you, it's like, eh, sports are just not my thing. Some of you might describe yourself as devoted to your schoolwork. You know, you, you show up to class early. You write more pages than are what's actually assigned, and I don't understand that, but you go for it. If that's you, man, you do you, boo, right? Uh, some of you guys, y'all are so passionately devoted to your family that you will bend over backwards to do whatever it takes. Some of you are are devoted to your job at that level where you'll put in the extra hours, you'll stay late, you'll just do what you can. You would say, I'm devoted to my job. So do we have a clear picture of what devotion looks like, right? I mean, like a rabid fan. Would you be able to use that term to describe the way that your relationship with God and your relationship to God's people is? Now, I don't expect you to come in here waving foam fingers, you know, right? But at the same time, you should be marked by more of a devotion to Christ and to God's people than you are by what sports team you follow, your job, even your family. It's not on the screen, but isn't that what Jesus said? He said, if if you don't hate your father and mother, you're not worthy of being my disciple." Your love for Christ, your devotion to him should be so great that that as much as you love your mom and your dad and your spouse and your kids, it should look like hatred because of how much you love Jesus. Do you have that level of devotion? The word here that Luke uses is the same one he uses in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, to talk about how the apostles devoted themselves to praying together. In Acts chapter 10, verse 7, it's the word that's used to describe servants who attended to their master's every need. It's used in Romans chapter 13, verse 6, to talk about government officials who are constantly attending to the needs of their people and making sure that right is rewarded and that wrong is punished. 
That's the picture of devotion here. And we can't claim that we have that level of devotion when church is just a few hours a week for us. Now listen to me. Hear me very clearly throughout this entire message. There's a danger that we can have where we become devoted to activity more than we are devoted to Christ. Some of you have been a part of churches before that had things going 24 hours a day. And they may have been going and blowing and doing great things for the kingdom of God. But sometimes what happens is we just try to stay busy. You know, we throw in one more activity in the calendar, we throw one more thing, and we've got one more ministry, and we've got one more event, and we've got, because if we're busy, then we must be doing something. And we never actually stop to say, is this what Christ requires of us, or are we just busy? See, their attitude of devotion was directed in very specific ways that did involve them getting together very often, but we're going to see that was not just about doing activity for activity's sake, but for very specific reasons. Are you devoted to Christ? And by the way, you can't be devoted to Christ without being devoted to God's people. See, when he uses that term devotion, he's talking about the apostles' teaching and fellowship, gathering together, eating together, praying together, sharing the gospel together, as we'll see later. They were devoted to, and I know it's cliche, and I've heard churches overuse this term, but it's the idea of doing life together with others who are following Christ. So, if everyone was as, in the church was as devoted to Christ and his people as you are, how healthy a church would be? be? It starts with an attitude of devotion. Well, an attitude of devotion to what? Because like I said, you could be devoted to your job, to your family, to a sports team, to whatever your hobbies are. It's an attitude of devotion that we see plays itself out in an active faith. If we're going to see God move, we've got to be devoted to an active faith in him that, as we see in this text, is going to express itself several different ways. Look back at verse 42. It said, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, as we go back, we're going to break each of these out so you can see a little bit more clearly what's going on. The early church was marked by a devoted faith that led them to do certain things. They look a little bit different in our context, but if we devoted ourselves to these things as a church, we would be doing great. We see that a healthy church is, number one, going to study God's word. Study God's word. We have to make sure that we put a priority as a church on studying God's word. Here in the early days, you see they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Keep in mind that when the church first got started, they didn't have any of the things that we call the New Testament, that back third of your Bible that contains the Gospels and the book of Acts and Romans and all the letters that Paul wrote and all the letters that others wrote and the book of Revelation. And they didn't have any of that. They had the Old Testament where God had made promises to his people, where they had seen examples of those who had followed God well and who had done poorly, and that God had laid out all of the sacrificial system and all these things. So in those early days in the church, what happened was God took the apostles and helped them to see from the Old Testament how Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises that he had made and what that looked like for the life that they were to live. Those things, by the way, have been recorded for us in the New Testament. I am not an apostle in that sense. Now, we are all apostles in the fact that we've been sent by God to take his, the gospel into the world. But I'm not an apostle in that I don't have the ability to teach in an authoritative way like they did. It's not how God works after this time period. 
So when they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, what they were doing was devoting themselves to basically what we're doing when we devote ourselves to the study of God's word where that teaching is recorded for us. Does that make sense? If you got any questions about that, I'd love to talk with you. If you want some examples of what that looked like, by the way, go back and read the section in Acts chapter 2 that we skipped over. Or read in Acts chapter 7 where you've got Stephen's uh, message and sermon that he gives right before he's killed. You can look at how they took the Old Testament and drew out from that and showed how Christ was the fulfillment of it and, and they showed the implications for that now. That was what they were teaching. And like I said, those are the things that are recorded for us in the rest of the New Testament. So in the Gospels, in Acts, in all of the letters, in Revelation, we have for us the apostles' teaching. And so part of us as a church honoring God of being a healthy church is that one of the key things we'll be devoted to is studying God's word. Now, that happens in here on Sunday mornings. That's why you'll notice most of my messages, I'm not going to always give you like, you know, five tips to a better marriage or 10 ways to get along better at work, you know, those kind of things, unless they're in the text. Now, if they're in Scripture and we can draw those out of the Bible, then that's what we'll do. But by and large, I want you to know God through his word. Here's the thing, though. How many of you eat more than once a week? Okay, some of you are dead. All right, Um, If you don't eat more than once a week, we've got an issue. In the same kind of way, it's great that you're here or it's great that you're watching this online, but you've got to be studying God's word throughout the week. Now, that happens individually first. We need to be constantly in God's word on our own. But there's also a part of us that needs to be in partnership with other believers studying God's word together. Does that make sense? See, that's what we see in the second thing that he says. Not only are we to study God's word and study it individually, we're also to be studying it together in partnership with other believers. Now, let me ask you, by the way, going back on this one, as we study God's word, let's go back and ask that question again. If everybody in the church was devoted to studying God's word like I am, how healthy of a church would we be? Okay? Now, again, this isn't something we do just in isolation, although you should be spending time regularly. We have the privilege of having our own copy of God's Word. In fact, most of us probably own more than one Bible. And if not, if you need a Bible, I can get you one. Um, If not, you've got a smartphone. Most of us do. If you've got a smartphone, you can have literally every translation imaginable in almost any language you could ever think of. Even like the language that we, we are working among, the Indau of Zimbabwe, they speak a language called Chishona, and there's two Chishona Bibles available for free in the Bible app, okay? So you can get it, access to it anywhere. But what we see is they didn't just study it on their own. They were devoted to being partnered with other believers. That's the idea. When you see that word fellowship, that's what I want you to think of. Now, We don't talk about fellowship outside of church. So if you've not grown up in church, that word fellowship may be kind of weird to you. Probably the only time you have heard that is in a movie that was just recently re-released that is the first of an epic saga that is the first book of the Lord of the Rings, which is called the Fellowship of the Ring, right? What is the Fellowship of the Ring all about? Well, for those of you who are like, I don't know, I don't care about weird things. It's about an... Uh, It's a fantastical story about this hobbit who has this evil ring that has to be destroyed. There's only one place and one way to destroy said evil ring. So there's a group of various people and, and 
creatures from different races and things that band together to help make sure that they can carry this ring to have it destroyed. That group of people that band together to take the ring to Mordor and have it destroyed is the fellowship of the ring. The group that says, and my axe, right? When Gimli says that, right? You know, that, that group that assembles is the fellowship of the ring. So they're banding together with a common purpose and a common mission in place. So when we talk about fellowshipping with each other, it's more than just getting together to hang out, although that's a part of it, honestly. There is a partnership with other believers where we're working to fulfill the mission that God has called us to live. It's a partnership, not just hanging out time, right? That's a great picture of the idea of fellowship. The early church was devoted to banding together, to doing life together, and to living out their calling to walk as children of God. Luke highlights a few things about what that looks like. He says there, to the fellowship, and then there's kind of something you don't see as clearly in English, but it makes a little bit more sense in the Greek. It says there, to the fellowship, and then it goes, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Those two words kind of identify for us what he means by fellowship. So fellowship there is breaking the bread and prayer. They ate together, they prayed together. Now, some of this may have been involved in the Lord's Supper. That's how some commentators take it. And certainly that was part of their time when they gathered together. They would take communion together. In fact, heads up, everybody, I want to do communion next Sunday. Okay, so everybody needs to know. All right, we're going to do communion together next Sunday. We take the Lord's Supper together, but this was more than just taking the Lord's Supper. This was actually getting together in people's houses and eating meals. Now, again, everything in 2021 has the same caveat that it did by about this time last year. I recognize that we're in a pandemic, and people will have different levels of comfort, different levels of ability. But at this point, guys, we need to be making sure that at the very least, we are checking in with others around us. If you don't feel comfortable getting together at somebody's house or going out for coffee, you know, that's something for, between you and the Lord. You, you've got to do what you feel best there. But but the early church from day one has always gotten together with other believers. In fact, you look at verse 46, it said, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. See, getting together with other believers was a part of the daily rhythm of their lives. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands, please don't. But how many of you will not unless you do something different this week, will not talk to somebody else from Christiansburg Baptist Church before next Sunday. See, some of us, this is it. We'll see other believers today, but tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day, we won't see anybody, we won't talk to anybody, we'll go about our life until we get back together next Sunday. Now, there's two ways you could respond to that. Some of you would sit there and say, well, if the church really cared about me, they would contact me. They'd notice I wasn't around. They, you know, and guys, listen, we should be. But did you ever have one of those moments where you sat down with your parents and you were sad when you were a kid because so-and-so wasn't being friends with you? Maybe in that conversation, your parents may have said something that To have a friend, you have to be a friend. Maybe you need to call. Yes, somebody ought to call you. 
But maybe part of fellowship and partnering with other believers is for you to be the one to make the call, for you to be the one to make the investment, for you to be the one to reach out. Instead of sitting around waiting and feeling sorry that nobody has, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean here, guys. I remember at our church in Arkansas, this is, I can say this because see, y'all don't know anybody there, and I don't even remember these people's names because I was only there for like a year. This was a family that wasn't connected to our church. There was a lady who had passed away and after having been in the hospital for six weeks, and no one at the church knew about it. And her family called us upset because nobody knew about it. Well, here's the thing. Nobody called us to tell us. We would have gladly ministered, but we had no idea what was going on. I can't know what's going on in everybody's lives. Your deacons can't know. Your Sunday school teachers can't know. Your small group leaders can't know. We've got to be involving ourselves in each other's lives. We've got to call. And yes, our deacons are working on trying to call more frequently and being more involved in things. We're, we're developing systems to help us with that. But the reality is, it's the responsibility of all of us to partner with other believers. You make the call. You set up the coffee date. You invite somebody over to your house. Invest in other people's lives. Now, as they did, they did sit down and eat meals together, but what else did they do? Well, it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. One of the most powerful things you can do for someone else is to pray with them. To sit there and say, you know what? I'm so sorry that you're going through this. Let's ask God to work here. Is there anybody that knows you well enough to know what's going on to actually pray for you in in more than just kind of in a general sense? Is there anybody that you know better than others that you can call and and say, hey, here's what's happening, and I need you to pray for me about this because I'm really struggling with this right now, or or that you can call and say, hey, I know that you had this coming up. How's that going? Are you you feeling better? See, that was the early church. They partnered together. They ate together. They prayed together. They studied the apostles' teaching together. Is there anybody that you're doing that with? So again, ask yourself the question. If everyone in the church was as devoted to the fellowship as I am, how healthy of a church would we be? We're studying God's word. We're going to partner with other believers. That partnership, by the way, manifested itself in an incredible way in the early church. As we see, the next thing was that they gave radically to others. They gave radically to others. Verse 44. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. Listen to the words used here, guys. All, every. Verse 45. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. We'll see this more clearly when we get to the end of chapter 4 and they start talking about how this looked a little bit more specifically. It actually says in in chapter 4, there was not a single poor person among the believers because they had been so generous in giving. Now, let's be clear here. There's a couple of errors we need to avoid as we look at this. Some have looked at this to say that this is a biblical example of of socialism or communism. And I'm just going to flat out tell you that's not what's going on here. This is not forced this is a voluntary participation. We see that when we see Acts chapter 5 where uh, they're, they're confronting Ananias and Sapphira and said, you could have sold this for whatever you wanted and kept whatever you did. The problem was they lied. It wasn't that they didn't give all of it, okay? So this is not a socialistic setup. However, I understand we are in Republican territory, right? I'm afraid that when I say that, see, yeah, see, this ain't that socialism, 
No, but there was not a single person in there whose needs were not met. See, I'm afraid that, that I mean, guys, y'all know where I am, okay? I'm afraid that we'll say, I don't want to be a socialist, so I'm going to close myself off and I'm not going to give. There's, there's two extremes here. There were people who had needs in the church. And you know what people did? They sold houses and land to be able to pay to meet the needs of those in the church. Think about that. That's not, I threw a 20 in the offering plate as it went by. That, that's, I dug deep and sacrificed property so that someone else's needs could be met. That's how radically generous they were. And it was a voluntary thing out of the overflow of their heart because they looked back only a matter of months from the fact that the God of the universe had hung on a cross and died in their place to give them his life. And they said, if he would do that, then man, I want to give everything I can. If everybody at Christiansburg Baptist Church was as generous as you are, how would we be doing? See, if we're going to be a healthy church, we have to give radically. Give in ways that others would look and say, I can't believe you would still invest in this person. Now, we understand about issues. There are complications about enabling sin and and, you know, helping people to be able to escape poverty by recognizing their God-given design and things like that, that we understand that. But again, I think we err too far on the side of caution. You know, I think back to when the, the tabernacle was being built. God gave all of the instructions to Moses about how you were supposed to make the curtains and how you were supposed to make the furnishings and you were supposed to use bronze for this and you were supposed to use this for this. And, and so they had an offering where they asked the people to donate what they needed to be able to build the tabernacle. Do you remember what happened at the end of that? They brought so much that the craftsmen came to Moses and said, you got to tell the people to stop giving because we've got more than we could ever use. Would to God that that would be the testimony of his people at Christiansburg Baptist. Where the deacons were getting phone calls from people saying, hey, I've got some extra that I want to give. Do you know anybody who could use it? And we'd say, no, because as far as we know, everybody's needs are met. Boy, can you imagine that? Can you imagine caring that deeply? That's part of that fellowship. We can't ignore the fact that they really did sell their possessions to make sure that nobody in the church was living in poverty. In the early days of the church, they were marked by radical generosity. What would it take for our church to be the same? There's one other action I want to highlight for us that comes out of the, the cultural context in one of the statements Luke makes. If you look down at verse 46 there, it talks about the fact that every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. Although that was the place of worship, and that's where they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was also the place where they encountered people who were not yet following Christ. See, so that's the last thing we see here is their active faith caused them to share the gospel with others. They had a regular time where they went out into the community and they engaged lost people on purpose. 
See, that's what you find through like chapter four. You find the apostles going in for that time where they were daily meeting together in the temple. They encounter a man who needed to be healed. He's healed and that opens the door and gives them the platform to be able to declare the gospel with a whole lot of lost people, takes them before the Sanhedrin and repeatedly you see them in these early chapters in the book of Acts constantly taking the gospel in the temple. Constantly declaring who Jesus is. Yes, the temple was the place in the Old Testament that God designed worship for his people. However, the majority of people there were not acknowledging that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised in the Old Testament. They weren't following Christ. So as they're going to the temple and they're living out their Christian faith, talking about what the apostles are teaching them, they're doing so in the presence of people who don't yet know Christ. And they're doing it on purpose. So here's the thing. I mentioned earlier that danger that we as a church could just stack so many activities that you're in 16 different Bible studies, you're serving on six different committees, and you're doing this, and so you're here down at church every single day of the week. If that's true, when are you ever out there? When when are you going to be in a place where There are lost people who need to hear about Jesus. You know, it's interesting because when we talk about evangelism, we usually talk about it in terms of personal evangelism. That in my workplace, in my neighborhood, that I'm going to share the gospel. I think a lot of times that's causing us to end up with a lone ranger mentality. It's me against the world, right? I've got to go out and I've got to take the gospel and I've got to win people to Christ. And yes, you should be sharing the gospel in your circle of influence. But what would it look like if instead of you just trying to to win your neighbor to Christ, if when you had three families over from church, when it's wise to do so, you invited your neighbor to come over too. For them to see what it looks like when believers fellowship with each other, and you take an opportunity to invite them into a relationship with Christ when they're seeing other people following Jesus. So you're not doing this on your own. You're doing it in partnership with other believers. Maybe there's somebody else in the church that you know who has a similar hobby you do or a a similar interest in volunteering. Maybe the two of you decide you're going to start volunteering with the SPCA or, you know, with with some kind of animal rescue organization or, you know, start some book club or a chess club or get involved in somewhere in the community and do it together so that as you go, you're winning the gospel or you're winning folks for the gospel as you go together intentionally on purpose out into the community. Well, that's a little different, isn't it? That's not just kind of a Tuesday night visitation, cold calling kind of idea. That's going out and taking the gospel together as we go. So when you get hung up and don't know how to answer a question, maybe your friend can answer it. At the very least, they're seeing how believers treat each other because all they've ever heard was about how this church split or how these people were angry and how this person was a friend of theirs who used to go to church and they got kicked out because they got pregnant and they... Those are the things that they've heard. And all of a sudden, they start seeing you and, and your friend, and you both claim to know Jesus, and you talk about things going on at church, and, and, and they know that you've got this health thing going on, or they know you've got this struggle going on, or they know this is... And they say, well, why, why are you like that? And you can share the gospel where you're at, but you're not doing it alone. It's a mark of a healthy church. So if everybody in the church shared the gospel as regularly as you do, how would we be doing as a church? They were devoted. 
What were they devoted to? Well, they were devoted to studying God's word. They were devoted to partnering with each other regularly. They were partner, they were, in that partnership, that led them to give radically and to share the gospel with those outside. See what I mean, by the way? Luke can't even talk about the church being the church without talking about the church going out. He just can't. It was such a part of their DNA. They're devoted to this active faith. What does God do with that? Let's look at the outcomes real quick. Go back to verse 43. What's it say? Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. There was a sense of awe as people saw God working in ways that only he can. Remember, we talked about last time that... that, Although God may not work in the miraculous tongue speaking like he did in that first day, we may not see God healing people and raising people from the dead and all the things that the apostles saw, although God's God, he can do whatever he wants. But even if we don't, how, how incredible is it? Like, here's the thing we miss. Here's, a, here's what I, I take it for granted. When somebody genuinely comes to Christ, when God draws them to himself, This is a person who was spiritually dead from what the Bible says. And he raises them from the dead, and they're never to die again. He gives them eternal life. They are a new creation. When we're seeing that take place, that is an awe-inspiring thing. When someone genuinely comes to know Christ, it created a sense of awe in them. We can still have a sense of awe, even if we don't have the same miracles that we did then. As we see God save people or convict believers of sin or equip people to serve him in greater ways or restore broken relationships or releasing people from bitterness or helping others discover their identity and their purpose that can only be found in a relationship with him. Guys, those are things that only God can do, and they create an incredible sense of awe. But what else did they do? Well, verse 46 Last sentence there in verse 46, they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. Their hearts were filled with a sincere joy. It wasn't some fake mask that they wore to church every Sunday to put out. I'm blessed, brother, how about you? Right? Some of you are genuinely that happy in the Lord, and that's great. I'm so glad. But for some of you, it's fake, and you know it. By the way, everybody else does too. However, as they were seeing God work, it produced an awe-inspiring outcome of true, sincere joy. We've seen that here, I think. I mean, I really believe that there's this sincere joy that God gives us on Sundays when we're together. It's interesting because that sincere joy here overflowed in sincere praise. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They just couldn't help it. When they saw God doing these great things, it just spilled out in praise. Praise that God would love us, that he'd be merciful, yet still be the just God who'll make sure that every wrong is made right. Now, as others took notice of this joy, this sincerity, this generosity that they saw within the church, how did they react? Well, they were enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, I will say this is not something that's a guarantee. We'll see very quickly they start losing the favor of the people. They find themselves in prison. They find themselves getting beaten up. They find themselves being stoned to death by an angry mob. The favor, as we said last time, you know, we're the aroma of Christ. Sometimes that's going to be an attractive thing. Sometimes that's going to smell like death. But at this stage, 
they were doing things that allowed people to see that there was something worth following. J.D. Greer, who's the pastor of Summit Church down in North Carolina, says the gospel is offensive. We should work to make sure that nothing else is. The gospel is offensive. The message we stand up and, and declare every Sunday is that you are a sinner separated from God and that there is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. The only way for you to have a relationship with God is by surrendering to him through his death, burial, and resurrection as he draws you to himself. To put him in charge, to surrender completely, and to trust in him. That's an offensive message. When we're fighting with each other about what color the carpet is, or as one church I knew fought for two and a half hours over what, hap- what color to paint the upper half of the walls in their sanctuary, we make much greater offense than the gospel itself. We're not gonna water down the gospel. We can't change the fact that the gospel is offensive. However, as we're living in unity, as we're living, praying for each other, caring for each other, we can make everything else less offensive than the gospel itself to keep people from stumbling because we're a bunch of hateful people, can't even get along with each other. They were enjoying favor with all the people and then the natural outflow of all of this as God worked that way was there in verse 47. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. God drew people to himself in salvation. When the church was healthy, needs were met, people were cared for, God's word was learned and studied and grown in, and people got saved. Like we said at the beginning, man, I want that to be the case here. So let me invite you just to bow your head and close your eyes where you are. I don't want to ask you this question one more time. If everyone at Christiansburg Baptist Church, or if you're watching this online and you're a part of a, a different church, if everyone at the church that you're a part of was as devoted as you are to that active faith, how healthy would the church be? Can you say that you are rightly devoted to Christ? Can you say that you're devoted to God's word? Are you devoted to partnering with other believers? Are you devoted to being radically generous? Are you devoted to sharing the gospel regularly and bringing others along with you as you do? We all want joy. We all want to have favor. We want to see people saved. But right now, if you're here today and you know Jesus, would you... Would you focus maybe on one of those areas? Maybe it's that heart of devotion that's just not there. You've gotten distracted. So would you ask God to increase that heart of devotion? Maybe you've gotten off track in studying God's word, both individually and with others. Maybe you've not been praying regularly with others. You've not been partnering regularly with others. You've not been sharing the gospel regularly or being generous. Which of those things is God saying this morning for you that you need to focus on this week and change? 
Now, if you're listening this morning and you don't yet have a relationship with Christ, what we're going to do is we're going to continue with our head bowed and our eyes closed for just a minute. And I'll be down here and I'd love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. If you've got questions about anything we've said, you can come talk to me. But if it's going to take a little bit, I'd love to catch up with you after the service or this week. Let me pray for us and then I'm going to give you a minute with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Do business with God. If you need to talk to me, I'm here. Father, we want to see people saved. We want to see a church with joyful and sincere hearts. We want to be devoted to you and your people. So help us right now to to nail down one change we need to make this week. One way that you want to work in our hearts. One thing we need to do in obedience. Help us to settle that now. Continue with your head bowed and your eyes closed. I'm down here if you want to talk. If not, do business with God.